I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Jeff Shane, joined by true crime experts Leah Lamar and Dimitri Pappas. Leah hosts the iHeartMedia podcast Real Time Crime, which is available to download now. Dimitri is a producer and co-host of the iHeartMedia podcast, Real-Time Crime. Episode 35, The Case of the Advocate, The Convict, and The Undercover Lover. At 46 years old, Louise Ellis had what would appear to be a very full life in Ottawa, Canada. She was known for her sense of humor and her flair for the whimsical. Louise was a healthy and energetic woman who enjoyed dancing, gardening, and Tai Chi. She was popular and passionate and found success as a children's book author and illustrator. Louise had a unique style of drawing using just dots to create intricate and stunning images. But if only the caring, brown-haired beauty could create a picture-perfect image for her own life. Despite having so much, Louise felt like she was missing love. But while she was looking for a deep relationship, Louise also worked toward criminal justice reform. A true feminist, Louise often helped bring attention to wrongfully incarcerated women. But in 1993, she was interested in the wrongful conviction of a man named David Milgard. He'd been accused and convicted of murder. As she sat in the courtroom watching a hearing, a jailhouse informant took the stand. He wasn't necessarily conventionally handsome, but the bald man had a thick mustache and kind eyes. Louise was intrigued. It seemed that the convict had offered up testimony that would help free the convicted killer. In exchange, the informant would get a lighter sentence. After the hearing, as the man was being escorted out in handcuffs, Louise asked the bailiff for a moment with him. The man introduced himself as Brett Morgan. Louise told Brett he was courageous for telling the truth and that not every man had the bravery to do something like that. When she left court that day, Louise felt something she hadn't felt in a long time, a spark. Louise and Brett began writing to each other and she would visit him in prison. Within a short while, the relationship became romantic. Yes, he was in jail, but like most criminals, he deserved a second chance. Brett had come from an abusive home and still managed to be thoughtful and intelligent. As an advocate for justice, Louise was working hard to get Brett early parole. She vowed to be the one to make a difference in his life. Here's Jeff. The way Brett described their relationship was that Louise was his soulmate and that their love was profound. So they were by very much accounts in love. And Louise committed to what she said earlier, which is making a difference in his life. She set him up with the gardening business, buying him a truck and tools and really putting him on the path for success. 
And on the outside looking in, everything appeared to be going well. Despite the fact that Louise was quiet about her relationship, the couple appeared happy. Friends described the pair as something out of an Emily Bronte novel, Wuthering Heights, as there was an extreme class difference between them. She was very well educated and he was the epitome of blue collar. But there's one thing we haven't talked about, which is why Brett was in prison in the first place. Leah, do you know anything more about that? Brett had been convicted of manslaughter. Almost 20 years before meeting Louise in 1978, he actually strangled a prostitute to death in a hotel room. So he'd been high on cocaine at the time, and he had a lengthy criminal record before this incident, also including robbery and fraud. Now, that's that's pretty bad. But, you know, perhaps because of the previous uh, drug abuse, perhaps his drug abuse was part of the issue here. Now, according to our research, cocaine interferes with mood from the very first use. But in the longer term, cocaine abuse can cause frequent mood swings due to the interference it has with the brain. A uh, 2020 study showed that the most common substance taken by those committing domestic violence crimes was indeed cocaine. So Louise clearly felt that Brett had gotten sober and was rehabilitated. I mean, after all, that is the goal of the criminal justice system. Saturday, April 22nd, 1995 was a blisteringly warm day. Louise had plans to go visit an ex-boyfriend and his daughter about four hours away in Quebec. His name was Jean Maisonoff, and even though they were no longer together, she remained close with both him and the daughter. The girl was having a birthday party that day, and Louise wanted to attend. At around 1 or 1.15 p.m., Louise packed up her yellow truck and headed out. Hours later, Louise hadn't checked in with Brett. Concerned, he called a friend who lived in the area to go drive around and see if they could find her. The friend was able to find Louise's truck, but it offered nothing. There was no sign of a struggle, the doors were locked, and inside were her keys, purse, and overnight bag. It was as if Louise had vanished without a trace. Here's Leah. So, Brett gets the police involved, and a search begins. Now, while her car would indicate that she would actually have been somewhere close by, there was no sign of her in the woods or even in the nearby river, okay? So Brett took the initiative to find her. He made posters, performed his own searches, and he even waited on the road where her car was found to ask people driving and walking by if they knew anything. All to no avail. Brett also was super active in talking to the press. He could be seen in interviews saying, I have to find my sweetie. I have to bring her home. And it's interesting because I would think Brett would quickly become suspect number one because we've seen that in many cases where the romantic partner is always the first suspect, but that's not actually what happened. Police definitely looked into Brett. I mean, like he was a convicted killer. So hello, obviously he's the first person you'd look into for a myriad of reasons, but he was the one who reported her missing. So that didn't really point towards his guilt. I mean, there are a lot of times where the person who's committed the murder would never report the person missing. So just also remember, Louise set him up financially. And so he seemingly had no reason to harm her. You know, people always check finances as well for a motive. So we don't have a clear motive yet. Okay, so if Brett wasn't their number one suspect, then then who was? It seems police were looking at John, who was the ex-boyfriend that Louise went to go visit. 
but as we know, she never made it there. But John and Louise had been in an on-again, off-again relationship that ended for good when Brett came into the picture. So perhaps he was jealous of Brett and, and he killed Louise in sort of one of those, like, if I can't have you, then no one else can sort of thing. So it made sense in a way that John had a motive and he clearly had an opportunity because she had, you know, she was on her way to see him. John wasn't the only suspect that police were circling in on. Another suspect that they were looking at was the violent offender that Brett had ratted out. Remember, the start of this whole romance was Brett being a jailhouse informant to get someone out of prison. And police were thinking that maybe that man that Brett threw under the bus could have been angry enough to seek revenge against him by harming his common-law wife. Now, Leah and Dimitri, I mean, you guys cover a lot of crime in your podcast, Real-Time Crime. Yeah. Is this normal that the police are kind of circling a bunch of different suspects and kind of crossing people off the list? Or, or what do you make of this start of this investigation? Yeah, I think that they usually do look at a lot of different suspects and they always put the person of romantic interest in the pool or the family in the pool. You know, anyone who was super close to the um, deceased or anyone they might have worked with or been around that evening and they questioned the last people they came into contact with. So this is all pretty usual, I would say. And Dimitri, what do you think? Yeah, one of the things that, that I focus on a lot is I don't like when the police go and, and find the, the most obvious person right out of the bat and focus solely on that. So I do appreciate that they're taking all these things into consideration. And unfortunately, sadly for Louise, it seems that a couple of her relationships were abusive relationships. So both of those guys, you know, there's motive in both of those. And obviously someone that had been ratted out from jail, I think all three suspects are justified to be looked into. But it's interesting that the police in their due diligence are kind of backing off of the boyfriend who's also a convict and deciding to look elsewhere. When you hear a situation like that, it makes you think that there is a payoff situation or someone is close to someone. There's a dirty cop or, you know, there's some sort of handshake situation happening. Or my favorite option is there's something larger at stake. Like there's a marijuana farm being planted somewhere and the police are in business with this guy. And, you know, there's always someone being protected for illogical reasons until you find out that it's cocaine. And so, you know, because he had been on cocaine when he murdered the prostitute, it's not far off to think that he might be selling drugs to the cops or vice versa. To me, if someone's like, I know we said earlier, that that doesn't seem like something that the behavior of someone that did it. I don't know. And someone's like, oh, where is my sweetie? Oh, and asking to me, that almost feel I guess I'm trained to think like that's an act. Sadly, sometimes it's not an act. And then you end up suspecting that person anyway. But so I think I w- I'd like to think maybe the police were like, OK, we're investigating all of this, but we're not going to let on to who we're actually considering. Right. And I'd like to see the footage. Like, how good of an actor is this guy? I, I feel like he was one of those people that was like, oh, woe is me. Where is my sweetie? You know, just a real bad actor. I mean, I don't know. But uh, but then again, let me just say this. I think that if you are so concerned and really actively it, doubling down on trying to find the person, it either makes you look so guilty because you know exactly where the person is or so innocent. It's got to be an awkward situation. I, well, someone's like, I know this person thinks I might have done it. Now, what do I do? Am I doing this too much that I look guilty or am I? It's, it's probably tough to wrap your head around 
um, whether, you know, how you're portraying yourself, because you clearly don't want to be, if you didn't do it, you don't want to be mistaken. And I guess if you did do it, you also don't want to be found out. Without a body, this is all preliminary and it's hard to even make an arrest when you don't have a body, as we all know. The police performed an extensive search on John's land, which turned up nothing. He also had a pretty solid alibi. He'd been at his parents' cottage all weekend celebrating his daughter's birthday. There were lots of witnesses who could place him there. As for the violent offender that Brett had gotten into trouble with, he had been out of jail at the time awaiting sentencing, but on April 22nd at 6.10 a.m. the day Louise went missing, he was being pulled over for a traffic violation hundreds of miles away, so he couldn't have done it. The police were back to square one with no leads. Meanwhile, someone else was following the case very closely. Here's Dimitri. And that someone was Marie Perrant. She had moved to Canada like two years prior from Scotland, and she was actually studying to be a private investigator. Now, Louise's car was found just 25 minutes from Marie's home, and so I think she kind of felt drawn to the case. She hated seeing women being abused and felt that she needed to try and help in any way that she could. So as part of her, she kind of intertwined that with her studying, and as part of her final assignment in her PI training, she took on the case. Now, much like the police who were back at square one, she didn't have really an idea of where to start, so she decided to call Brett straight up and arranged a meeting with him. Problem is, Marie, like others, found Brett to be very charming, and she then wanted to help the man who lost the love of his life. Like all good narcissists, they are super charming, and we are easily convinced by them sounds like that could be the case here for poor Marie. But she started by looking at the big picture. So her first thought that was that was a carjacker, but the town in, in which Louise's car was found was mostly unpopulated as the summer season hadn't begun yet. The car was also locked and nothing was stolen. So the carjacker theory didn't really add up. The more Marie thought about the case, the more it made sense that someone who knew Louise was probably behind this. And now she's starting to think, could the police have gotten it wrong and John, the jealous ex? Where are we going with this? Well, as Marie was investigating the case more and more, she started talking to Brett regularly and they stuck up a bit of a friendship. As part of her investigation, she ended up recording all of their conversations with him and would then review them at night. So one night she was reviewing the tapes and she caught something that could not be ignored. She had asked Brett about the state of the car and Primarily, she asked him, was the seat pushed back farther than usual, as if someone else besides Louise had been driving it? And his response sent chills down her spine. He said, it was exactly the way I, and then he sort of stopped himself and started over and said, it was exactly the way Louise left it. Now, Marie could not help but wonder if she had just caught him in kind of a major slip. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
The police were looking more into Louise and Brett's life before her disappearance. They discovered that things hadn't been going as smoothly as he'd let on. At the time of her disappearance, Brett owed Louise $20,000. In speaking with the manager at her bank, the police discovered that she had been growing increasingly concerned that he hadn't paid her back, calling the manager four to five times a day and asking if the money had come in. Detectives also discovered that Brett had been writing himself checks from Louise's account. He'd been doing this by forging her signature. She would call the bank incensed at the mistake, and when they figured out it was Brett doing it, she would make excuses. It seemed like the compassionate and gentle 46-year-old children's book author was in way over her head. The police also uncovered Louise's diary. And while their friends thought Brett and Louise had such a solid relationship, as most do from the outside, her words portrayed a very different story than what her friends had ever imagined. She wrote that just two months after moving in, Brett became abusive. And the abusive behavior included Brett pouring beer over her head, punching a hole through the bathroom door during a fight, and many other very blatantly abusive acts. And she wrote that she wanted him to move out and that she wanted to break up with him. Yeah, Leah, and that's actually not all the police uncovered around the same time. They ended up finding what would become a bit of a smoking gun for their investigation. Now, if you remember, Brett had told them that the Saturday Luis was last seen alive, she left their place at around 1 or 1.15 p.m. But the cops found that her ATM card was used to withdraw exactly $280 at 2.53 p.m. Now, that ATM card was found in her car, which would imply that it left the house with her. And the police were able to track down the surveillance footage from the ATM camera. And sure enough, on the tape was none other than Luis's partner, Brett Morgan. That meant that he lied to the police about the last time he saw her. And if he lied about that, what else could he be lying about? They also uncovered that in May, right after the murder, Brett also started to request access to Luis's estate, which, as we know, is never a good sign. It's beyond not a good sign. It's basically saying, you know, I'm moving on past this, my, the disappearance of my partner, and now I want financial gain. So it seemed that the once tearful husband, Brett, now might have been the killer, right? But like we said before, without a body, prosecution can't do too much, so you can't really stick to any charges. The police knew that they needed more in their pursuit of Brett, so they bugged his house and started surveillance on him. And that's how they discovered that he was getting close with Marie Perrant. The police then reached out to Marie and got her involved in the investigation, which, as I'm sure an aspiring private investigator, was probably a bit of a dream come true. She immediately told them about her suspicions of Brett. The police asked her to help get information but she decided to do one better. She actually pledged that she would get them the body. In June, Marie suggested to Brett that they go search for Louise, and she had a listening device in her bag and surveillance on their tail. The police were tracking Brett and Marie as they made their way to the woods. Since the area was so isolated, they couldn't get too close, though, which kind of left Marie very much alone with a potential killer. And after about 90 minutes of driving, Brett pulled over and suggested they start searching. That would give me the chills alone, just him suggesting that they pull over in a random part of the woods. As they made their way through the woods, Brett was sopping wet with sweat. He stopped and he looked at Marie and apparently with a menacing grin, told her that the only time he ever got this sweaty was during sex. Gross. Oh, it's like sending a chill down my spine. And at that moment, I mean, 
anyone would realize this. It's like, if this guy wanted to kill her, the police never could have saved her in time. She was too far away. He would just do it right then and there. Poor Marie is left alone in the woods with this guy. Because they're they're tailing them, but they go into the woods and to keep that distance, they can't just all of a sudden jump out of a tree, right? She must have been terrified because she doesn't know that this guy didn't do it. The moment, however, luckily was interrupted by a helicopter flying overhead. So then I think Brett got a little suspicious and he asked Marie if she was an undercover cop. Now, Marie, you know, her quick thinking, she, she knew the listening device was in her bag. So what she held up her hands and she said, listen, if you want to pat me down, you can. So he started to. And then he stopped and he said that he trusted her. Luckily, because, I mean, what happened if he said, let me check your bag? You know, at that point, that was enough to spook him. And he told her that the search was over. We call her a private investigator, but she's barely one. She's not even officially one. This is her final assignment. I mean, she's a regular person now being involved with this very scary police investigation. What do you, what do you guys make of that? Well, it's interesting because our podcast started with the Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case. And the whole point of it was that the entire internet turned into social sleuths. And people wanted to go out and search for Brian Laundry. People wanted to go out and search for Gabby Petito. And so it's almost like regular people all the time want to get involved because people want justice, people want answers. I mean, it, it seems like she had taken this to the next level of what we have seen so far. If I were her, I would have been terrified. Well, that's it. I mean, like like you said, the social sleuths, that's great. But you're sitting at home looking at stuff and then, you know, putting out TikToks. This woman went into the woods for, you said it was, you know, her final assignment for, for school. It could have been her final assignment ever because she went into the woods with this guy and and clearly, you know, enough to be saying the enough inappropriate or weird stuff to put her on guard. I mean... I don't know. I, I give her I give her props for for um, being brave and, and for going through with that. But it, it had to have been terrifying. I mean, it's, it seems like the equivalent of letting a medical student, you know, do a heart transplant for their final exam instead of having it be a licensed doctor. How did the police do that? Right. right? The police are usually very specific or very careful when they put someone into a situation like oh, we're going to put a wire on you. But don't worry. But they literally put her in a harm in harm's way here. Right because they were following. So they were aware of this. They let her go far enough into the woods with this guy. And we're like, well, we're, we're willing to roll the dice with Marie is basically what they said. Yeah, that is really odd. Weeks passed and Brett had become skittish. He stopped returning Marie's calls and refused to go on any more searches. The police decided to use Louise's money as bait. Investigators told Brett that Louise couldn't be declared dead without a body. That meant that despite being her heir, he wasn't able to collect. Growing desperate for cash, Brett started to sell off Louise's personal items. One night, Marie finally got Brett to meet her at a bar. Over drinks, he asked her how he could trust her. They looked at each other and a moment of tension was building. He leaned over the table and got close to her face. Marie knew this was a make or break moment and she had to do what a police officer would never dare. So in the dark bar, she kissed Brett. The kiss is obviously very unconventional for a, a police officer or a PI student, I would imagine. But, you know, at times like this, when, when your life is on the line, the case is on the line, I guess you do what you got to do. I think that this is another case of doubling down. Exactly the way that he doubled down and, you know, acting desperate and trying to lead searches for her dead body. 
she doubled down on being like, no, you can trust me. I'm not a cop. Here, I'll show you. I'll kiss you. As soon as she came into the picture, right, Marie, they said she developed a friendship. She wanted to help this guy who lost the love of his life. She said she thought he was charming. Right. So then at that point, I was like, oh, gosh, does she fall for this guy? Is this one of those guys with the, the charming? Because now she may have thought he was innocent, but now she's clearly got questions because he's kind of freaking her out. So the question is, was she just playing this the whole time? Was she just like, I got to get this guy to trust me from the get go. And maybe she maybe she didn't find him charming. Either way, it's it's a ballsy move on Marie's part. The move seemed to work because as the night was ending, Brett calmed down and actually agreed to go on another search. So on July 7th, 1995, the pair went back into the woods. During the search, Brett was teasing Marie with questions, asking if she was nervous. And at one point, as they made their way through the thick brush, Brett told Marie to be careful of barbed wire. She immediately, you know, pinged on that because how would he have known the barbed wire was there if he had never been there? At this point, he's like, hey, let's go search again. So you think either A, he wants his money, so he's going to find the body, right? Or B, he wants to off me. And when he said that about the barbed wire, she, her heart must have sunk into her stomach. Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, finally in a clearing, Marie spotted Louise's body. She looked over at Brett, who, interestingly enough, was not looking at the corpse of his wife, but rather directly at Marie. She ran to him grabbed his shoulders and proclaimed, we did it, you know, like we found her. But to take this to a creepier level at that point, Brett was still only staring at Marie. And it seemed perhaps he was debating on whether or not he would have to kill her. Eventually that, that trance that he had on her broke and he began to cry. He ran to Louise's body and started sobbing and begging her to wake up. So after Marie calmed Brett down a little bit, they made their way back to the car, drove back to town. And later that afternoon, Brett went to the police and reported Luis's body. And instead of being thanked and kind of celebrated, Brett was actually arrested for the crime. So the police already had an official theory. And that was that on the morning of April 22nd, Louise was getting ready to go visit John for the birthday party and Brett attacked her in the bath. They think that he strangled her to death, wrapped her body in a shower curtain, and then put her in the truck's trunk, drove her out to the woods, and dumped her in the clearing where Marie would later find her body. And then after all that was said and done, he rode his bicycle back home and then waited to call the police. Let's stop here for another break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I wonder if Marie had not gotten involved, if the police ever would have connected the dots and if Brett would have been vulnerable enough to locate the body. I think that he didn't think through the fact that if they didn't find a body, he wouldn't get the money because even though he was the heir, they need a body. And so he was just scrounging for money. And 
I think Marie was the only person he felt safe around and he was just kind of praying she wasn't a cop and then she kissed him and then I think he felt like he needed someone. And so this was a last resort. Maybe he thought he outsmarted her and led her right to the body. He could have gotten away with it if he didn't need the money so badly. I think so. I think most of the credit obviously goes to Marie for really yes. putting herself out there and, and getting close to this guy. That's something that the police would not have been able to do. Uh, she probably even made uh, Brett think that she was trying to clear his name. But I think as much as we want answers quickly, I think Marie got his trust and then waited for the slip ups and the mistakes. It really goes to Marie's slow playing. This is what I think solved this case. Although he maintained his innocence, Brett was charged with first-degree murder, and at his 1998 trial that lasted six months, he was found guilty. Brett was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. The police also suspected he was responsible for two unsolved murders from the 1970s. As she wrapped up her first and very successful investigation, Marie asked the police to send one final message to the man she'd grown close with and ultimately helped put away. How does it feel to be taken down by a woman? Sadly, the message was never delivered to him as Brett Morgan died in prison of hepatitis C just two months after being convicted. Marie was awarded $4,600 for her help. She eventually moved back to Scotland. As for Elise, a woman once full of so many promises, her memory lives alive in a Canadian monument dedicated to commemorating women who were murdered. I wanted to ask you guys, with real-time crime, is there anything coming up? What can we expect next for the podcast? What can you tease us with? So on our podcast, Real-Time Crime, we have exclusive interviews with incredible directors or cast members of documentaries for true crime that will come out a week later after our episode. So you hear it first on our podcast. You hear exclusive interviews with people who have the inside scoop on all of the juicy details. So make sure to tune in to Real-Time Crime if you like to have all of the information at the palm of your fingertips before it gets released. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the crimes keep happening, so we're never at a loss for stuff to talk about. Leah is a writer, actress, producer, director, stand-up comedian, and Clubhouse app influencer. She also hosts the iHeartMedia podcast, Real-Time Crime, which is available to download now. You can find Leah on Instagram at Leah Lamar. Dimitri is a comedy writer and consultant with over 25 years in the entertainment industry. He's a producer and co-host of the iHeartMedia podcast, Real-Time Crime. You can find him on Instagram at Dimitri Pappas. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Piketon Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 